Hello, and welcome to the Tennis with an Accent podcast, where we talk about tennis by connecting the present of the sport with its storied past. Be it the nuanced unpacking of the individual stories, long-form interviews, or the detailed tour-level analysis, we have you covered. In sports history, there are trailblazer athletes who alter the course of the game and set new standards. My guest today is one of the most important players of the Open era. He changed the way the game is played today. Some even call him the father of power tennis. He changed the way players trained, how they ate, oh, sorry, what they ate and how they scheduled training and practices. He also redefined the record books. I'm not going to recite every single record, but uh, there are a few records that stay very close to my tennis remembrance. Uh, he became the first player to win 100 matches in two seasons, reached nine straight finals of the ATP finals known as the Nabisco Masters back at the Madison Square Garden also famously reached eight straight U.S. Open finals. And this is the most important one for me. His 83 titles in the decade of 80s is a record for the most titles by any ATP player in the Open era. With great pleasure and honor, I welcome the great Ivan Lendl to Tennis with an Accent podcast. Ivan, how are you? I'm doing great, Sakib. Thank you for the introduction. You're very kind. No, I mean, these are facts. I mean, I've, some can call me a Lendl fanboy, but I'll be very objective. You are... <laughs> You are a very important player in the history, how the game is played. So I know I've listened to some podcasts you appeared. You don't like to look in the past, but today is going to be a good exercise on your glorious past because there are fans like myself all over the world who love to hear your views. So so I'll apologize before I get started. This will are, be about your playing career. We'll live in the past. Are you, are you sure it's about the past or about testing my memory? I, I, I wouldn't dare test your memory. <laughs> <laughs> This is your story, your record, whatever you say is the truth. <laughs> All right, so my first question uh, is, my entry point as a fan, uh, I started watching tennis with my late father in the mid-80s, and my first Lendl match of the 86th semifinal against Slobodan Zivojinovic. You were the best player in the world that time. You had come into the tournament winning 45 of the 48 matches. Uh, do you recall that phase, and was that the best phase of your career? You were rarely losing. Well, uh, of course, I remember 86. I remember the semifinals against Bobo. And uh, yes, 86 and 87 were uh, the two best years of my career. I was 26 and 27 years old, uh, and I was at the peak of my game. And that, that match, uh, if you want to elaborate to a listener, you know, winning a five-set at Wimbledon uh, center court, uh, any memories that come back? Is a lot of back and well, forth kind of match. One one thing which stands out is that it was five sets, yet I never got broken in the match. And uh, there are matches in the history at Wimbledon or others, other places as well, I'm sure, but uh, where the player never loses the serve, his serve and loses the match. And I certainly didn't want to be part of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's being on the wrong side of the record book. <laughs> Uh, and also, the thing that gets associated with the Lendl dominance in the 80s is the fitness. Right now, a lot of players pride their fitness, but you were one of the first players to see uh, with incredible fitness. And uh, with those 100 match seasons that I mentioned in the introduction, was Supreme Fitness your calling from the get-go when you started professional tennis, or this became a focus as you became a top player? It wasn't from the get-go. I mean, it's not that I was unfit, but uh, I felt at some point uh, around uh, 1984 that in order to be to get better, 
that I need to get fitter as well. And uh, I hated losing matches because the other guy was fitter than me. Uh, there is not much I can do if the guy is skilled and he has a good day and so on and so on. Then uh, you can lose that way. Uh, can't do much about it, but you certainly can affect how good physically you are. And uh, so it became uh, kind of motivation almost for me not to lose matches because the other guy is fitter. Sure. So I also did, you know, ample research uh, because I knew you as a player back in the day, but I did a lot of research coming into this because it's hard to uh, nail a career like yours. You know, you have to be selective what you ask. So the follow-up question to fitness is you also give a lot of credit uh, to a nutritionist called Dr. Haas. And then, you know, you came uh, in the mid-80s, you know, partnered with him and changed uh, how you ate and how you trained. Uh, and I think today this is a norm, but I mean, you were like a visionary. So if you don't mind sharing some of those details with the listeners, that's going to be very rich for us. Well, I think, uh, as I said earlier, you being very kind. Uh, I can't take credit for that because I, I was just looking around and learning. And there there was Martina, who has worked with Robert Haas before, already at that time. And she was extremely fit. And I saw how it was, how, how much good it was doing for her in her career. And I said, if Martina can do it, I can do it as well. So I, I think uh, maybe I was the first in the men's tennis, but uh, certainly Martina has been doing that extreme fitness. And uh, in order to be fit, you have to also eat properly, rest properly and so on and so on. So I was trying to learn all of that and, uh, uh, it's not a bad thing to copy somebody who is dominating women's tennis. No, absolutely. And uh, some of those eating habits, I think, have transcended to generations. As as most sports, not only tennis, became very professional. What you put in your body, how you get the fluid. So, yeah, I mean, you are definitely, uh, if not the number one, but you're, you're one of the most influential people who change what, how tennis plays. Uh, yeah, you know, today, to in today's game, yeah, in today's games, uh Today's game, the guys are really uh, amazing with that. Uh, the details they go into with training and data. Uh, I mean, data is so available now. And if you know how to use it, it, uh, it really can help you a lot. And uh, we, we were all learning then, right? We can go to statistics. Um, I used to keep a book on every match I played. So... I could look next time, six months or 18 months later, saying, okay, this guy, he prefers to uh, go for the serve out wide on big points or this and that. Anything I remember, even if it was three, four or five little things from a match, I would put it in the book that night. And uh, then I could go to it when, uh, when I played that person again. But today you have all the statisticians and you can find out all these things. Yet to me... Statistics are extremely important, but they're not everything because there is still that personal feeling, right? Uh, maybe that opponent prefers to serve to certain location, but he does not do that against me because I was doing well with that location. So it's an indicator, but not a rule. No, amazing. So, uh, this, is, yeah, this, is, this is really good stuff. So you were taking notes yourself. 
So that's kind yes. of even shows, you know, the memory. And, you know, so you remember. So I, players do remember what I happened can, at 43, 15, 40. <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, I can give you an example. There was a player. He was uh, from North Carolina, where I am right now. Uh, he may actually have lived in Charlotte. And we were decent friends. guy called John Sadri. John was not very tall, but he had a huge serve. And he was one of the first few players starting to go for second serves as well. And I have lost to John a couple of times where I couldn't break him. And so I started marking where he serves and I found out that he serves eight or, or maybe even nine second serves to the forehands. And once I realized that, I never lost to him again. So I, I knew the importance of statistics already then. When I was growing up in Czechoslovakia, there was a gentleman who would sit by the match and he would mark every shot hit. And three days later, he would come to you and say, look, look you know, when uh, you hit back and down the line, uh, you miss some or not miss some because you're still a kid. You're 12, 13 years old. So you don't understand and you don't, you can't really uh, think it through properly. But he was able to show us. Uh, and it was his hobby. He wasn't doing it as work. It was his hobby. And he was able to show us where our strengths and weaknesses are. And uh, so I knew the value of the data then. Well, that's uh, quite, quite impressive. And, you know, we all know how data is so important. So this paves way for perfectly for the next question, because you showed this awareness, you're taking notes of uh, your opponent's tendencies. Uh, so in a career that spanned like close to 15 years, you played many generations. So was there a time you recall that you had to reinvent your game to keep up with the competition? No particular names, but, you know, different era presents different challenges. So how did the Lendl game uh, change over the years? Did I play 15 years? I, I think I played a bit longer than that. 15 uh, at I the top, yeah. The Sorry. Tour. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so I, again, I became aware of it early that the game is evolving. Uh, one year I was beating John McEnroe. And then the following year, I had trouble beating him and didn't beat him much. So I started looking at the tapes from a year and a half ago. And after one set, I stopped. I said, neither one of those two guys from 82 could compete with the guys in 83. So that indirectly showed me that I need to keep improving my game. And uh, I, will, I will even put it out there this way, saying that in 92, I was probably a better player than in, in 86 or 87, but the game has moved forward. That's very interesting. We hear all the players say that, you know, again, no names here, but a lot of top players have said uh, their version of today is better than when they were dominating. That's a very honest assessment because at fan level, we look at achievements. Oh, he or she is not winning titles. That year, they won Wimbledon and US Open. How can they be better now? So that's, I think, a very astute point that the game keeps getting better. Yeah, and and uh, I can tell you from the statistics, which is my job uh, to look at, that players serve bigger, place it better, and same thing goes for the ground strokes in today's game than they did five years ago. It's not just one player, it's a lot of them. No, interesting. So... The other fascinating part of the journey is, which a younger listener may or may not know, uh, I framed a question based on your, your move to the United States. Commitment and control are often attributes you know, we associate with highly driven athletes. You moved to the U.S. in the early 80s and then stayed on the East Coast where a lot of tennis was played. 
you also built a very a court which was similar to the U.S. Open at your home in Greenwich. You would also get videotapes, uh, which was probably not the norm, but top players were doing that, of your opponents and study their tendency. And now you said you took notes, which is the norm now. How important was that to be uh, for you to be in control of these factors to be the best player in the world? Well, as we said before, in order to stay on top, you have to keep improving or everybody will just go straight by you. And uh, I always said that what happens to the top players is they keep adjusting, they keep adjusting. And at some point, they're not able to adjust anymore. And that's when they get taken off, they get overtaken. So the evolution is a part of the game. You keep, uh, you keep tinkering that's with normal, the game. That's normal, yes. Okay. That's normal. All right, so Wimbledon is a big you part keep, of the... Con- you, sorry, keep working, you keep working on your game. You keep working on your weaknesses. You, of course, have to work on your strengths. And at some point, uh, give you an example here. Pete Sampras, he came with a huge serve and nobody was able to return it. Well, 10 years later, there were many more big serves so guys could practice against it and started returning Pete's serve. So it starts causing more problems for, for Pete. Same thing with me. I was hitting the ball really hard off the ground. But after a while, there were play, younger players which came because young players emulate what's on top of the game or who is on top of the game. So they see that. They see it's possible to serve that big. It's possible to hit it that hard off the ground. And then they come to the tour and they have that. And all of a sudden, what was your strength? And you were the only one or one of the very few. There is 50 of them. So if you're not able to improve in the other parts of the game, they're going to, they're going to overtake you. Yeah, absolutely. It does make sense. And I, and I believe in that notion. Each generation, I think, takes on from the previous generation. Uh, and about reinventing, you know, you switch to a mid-sized Mizuno frame in your quest for Wimbledon. And if if a young listener is again listening, you had an impeccable Wimbledon record for someone who didn't win. You made five semis, two finals. You also won the two Queens titles. So did I know you don't live in the past, but what, has it ever crossed your mind that maybe that racket switch came a little late? You ever second guess your choices uh, because it could have turned out differently? Okay. Uh, we see that around even in today's game. When you're successful with something, it's very difficult to go away from it. And unless that's so obvious and clear immediately that, that that's an improvement, it's very difficult to switch. So let's talk about rackets or the, the style of play. If you're successful playing baseline game, and then you need to start being more open to going forward more often, uh, it, it becomes a problem because you were so successful not doing that. Same thing with the racket. You have a racket which is you're great with, and now you're taking something new. I mean, we have seen it many times, especially with young players, where they come to the tour with uh, one racket and they switch to something different, whether it's for the money or looking for something better, whatever the reason. And they're never that good with it because you can say, okay, the bigger racket is going to be advantageous for this and that. Yes, but you can also 
lose few matches, not have confidence, and it could uh, really hurt your career. So that's very, very difficult uh, thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, at, at the fan or even at the journalist level, uh, a lot of time there are suggestions he or she should be standing in early, hugging the baseline or yeah. change a racket because sometimes we don't realize it's a, such a one-on-one sport that player, whoever we are talking about, got to that position by years of hard work and a formula that works. So just because you lose few matches, like you said, you, you're not going to change something quickly. It's a process. It's a mindset. Yeah, and and uh, it's also about confidence, and confidence can be very fragile. True. So a parallel lane here, right? Those Wimbledon years when you also, one year you missed Roland Garros, the other year you were injured and didn't play. So again, fans from my generation, when you were such a dominant Roland Garros players, you know, in 87, you won your last title. Then in 88, you lose to Jonas Svensson, which is a match doesn't get talked about. I didn't see that match, but I was reading about that match in India. And then finally, YouTube had some imagery of that match now, videos. So what do you remember of that time? Do you think you left a French opener too on the table because you wanted to win Wimbledon and winning a fourth French didn't mean probably as much as winning your first Wimbledon. Do you ever look at that scenario? Well, that, that that's for sure. If you give me a choice uh, between fourth French and one, first Wimbledon, of course I would have taken Wimbledon. Uh, I remember that match with Jonas where uh, he beat me in the quarterfinals and he drop shotted me to death. And uh, for whatever reason, that worked. Uh, he had a very strange game. The forehand was kind of uh, weaker than the backhand, but he I, I just couldn't see those drop shots. Uh, but uh, that year and the following year when I lost with Cha to Chang uh, gave me more time to prepare for Wimbledon because remember those days it was only two weeks between French and Wimbledon. Now it's three. And I had really good... Uh, I had really good tournaments at uh, Wimbledon in 88 and 89. I played really, really well. And I started feeling more comfortable. So with Tony Roach, we decided in 1990 that I'm going to skip the French. I uh, finished uh, the Miami event, which was at Key Biscayne at the time. And a week later, I flew to Australia and uh, was practicing on grass already in uh, early April. And uh, it, it was actually one of the best days of my tennis life uh, because we were at Tony's uh, resort where they had grass courts and we had a couple sparring young guys and so on and so on. And he says to me, one day he says to me, mate, you need to play some matches. I go, I, I know, but what are we going to do? These guys, that's not uh, not going to work. He goes, no, no, no. We put some stands up for Saturday. Be ready to play. I'll get some friends. So I show up at breakfast on Saturday and there is Tony sitting with Ken Rosewell and John Newcomb. <laughs> and uh, I ended up playing a big pro set in front of people, actually, with uh, each one of them. And it was such pleasure to to be able to do that. Wow, that's, that's, that's a great story. Uh, and, you know, 88, you mentioned you played, you know, your best Wimbledon along with 89. You were in great form. It's also a very bizarre season for, for the Lendl graph because that's the only year uh, in a long time when you didn't play 50 matches. You were injured, I think, uh, after Australia or maybe in February. 
then you didn't play much between US Open and the Masters. There was a very start and stop season for you. And you still was world number two. You still made Wimbledon semis, US Open semis, lost a Masters final to Becker. So, I mean, it's it's for me, it's like one of those, as a fan, was a very strange season because of the injuries. And what what do you remember of that season and the frustration that came with it? You, you couldn't train probably or play a normal 70-match season. And you still was world number two. Yeah, it was a very light season for me. And... Um, uh, I'm not sure what was wrong with me early in the year, but something was there. I know that. But then uh, my shoulder was giving me trouble, and uh, and a couple of weeks after the U.S. Open, I had uh, I had shoulder surgery in Los Angeles, and uh, I was taught that no playing for six weeks and no serving for six more weeks, which would have killed my Australian Open. And so I worked really hard, and I sucked it up through pain and uh, I played my first exhibition event four weeks after the surgery and then uh, then uh, I had that match with Boris where even though it was a heartbreaking end to the match I was so happy because it gave me so much confidence that I'm better again and that I can win matches and uh, then uh, I happened to win in Australia in January so so that that was kind of uh very unusual season, but uh, I was able to come back, which was big for me. Yeah, I remember one of the Indian magazines had a great line, uh, with all due respect to, you know, uh, Mats, who's a great player himself. When you return to number one, I think one of the magazines said something, the real owner has the keys back to the house or something. <laughs> so the Lendl fans like myself, remember that. Must have been, but, but <laughs> I remember reading a quote from Mats, and if if you recall, Mats never really did so well after winning that U.S. Open and becoming number one. And uh, he had a quote somewhere saying that he didn't have that much motivation after that because he has achieved his goal, uh, reaching number one. And I always thought that becoming number one is a very dangerous goal because you have nowhere to go. If uh, you're trying to win as many majors as possible, then you always have the next goal, and you can you can uh, kind of aim at that. And I never spoke too much about it. I wonder if that was correct quote and if it really uh, demotivated him that he achieved his goal. Yeah, I remember reading it too. He definitely had an emotional. Uh... You know, down after that uh, that season, he lost to Ramesh Krishnan at the Australian Open and wasn't the same yes. player for for a while. So that's interesting. I, so, I don't think he ever was, was he? Probably not. Yeah, made a semi final in nineteen ninety in Australia, I think. But uh, overall, yeah, never played a final, never won any big title, even at the uh, at the tour level. Yeah, he definitely a different player. Yeah, you said something interesting about number one, right? Nowhere to go. We see you and other members of the big three, Sampras. A lot of people keep repeating success. So, again, a fan-level question. You don't talk to Ivan Lendl every day. So, if a listener is listening, we talk about majors. But back in the day, world number one was also a big deal. I mean, it's still a big deal, but right now, it's, you seem like it's about majors. So, uh, where, where where would you rank your dominance at world number one? Some would say, of course, you win majors, you become number one. There's a correlation. But as an isolation, yes. how important is world number one? Uh Let's put it this way. 
if I became number one without winning a major, I would not want it. Because A, it would lead to same question every time at a press conference. And B, in your own heart, you know that somebody else has won the majors. Even if it's four different guys, they won the majors and you didn't. How can you be better than them? To me, uh, becoming number one is byproduct of doing well, especially in the majors. No, that makes sense. Press won't be forgiving. You're right. Uh, so that 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 brings me to the ultimate one of the ultimate Lendl questions that we discuss at our level: clay versus hard. A lot of uh, fellow friends and fans or analysts who I rate very highly believe Lendl is a better clay court player. If you look at you know the mid ninety uh, mid eighties, and then there are a lot of us who also believe the the one-two punch of uh, serve and forehand, especially when you were playing in the late 80s, even 88, you know, beside all the injuries. So a lot of us lean the hard court way. How do you look back at this debate? Uh, did you have a preference or did you feel you played better in patches on clay and then some other time on hard? How do you see the evolution? It's pretty simple. When I was growing up, I grew up on clay. I have not touched a hard court until I was about 15 years old when I went to play orange ball. That was the first time I have played on hard courts. I have played indoors, uh, but it was mostly uh, either boards, wooden boards, or some kind of funky surface where the ball bounced all over the place. Not a true hard court. Uh, I was clearly better on clay, and that was my favorite surface early, but then I became better on hard court, and uh, it became my favorite surface. And uh, hardcore is also, you know, where you put your stamp in the Northeast, especially in New York, U.S. Open and the Masters. Uh, what do you remember about those time, those years? Did the city bring out the best for you or it was just another Grand Slam, uh, year-end championship, prestigious event? Did Did the location matter to you? Because your record in New York speaks for itself. How do you look back at those two events and your success? I'm convinced that the location did matter because uh, I was able to stay at my home in Greenwich. So, for example, at the U.S. Open, on the on the days when I didn't play a match, I would stay at home. So I didn't have to deal with all the all the distractions over there, whether it's the media, whether it's the traffic, whether it's this or that. And I think I'm convinced still today that it kept me mentally fresher and therefore uh, the success followed. So even for practice, you stayed at home, or you? Yeah, hit, okay. I mean, even for even for the finals, I would warm up at home and then drive in for the match. So you would have a, a fellow friend or a player come back, or you just practice with the team? Because a lot of times you see players are practicing with other players during the majors, or at least that's what I've seen. On well, the we had uh, I had friends come over, like Amos Mansdorf or Christoph van Rensberg. They would spend uh, time with us uh, the two weeks running up to the Open, and we would just practice together. Unbelievable, yeah. Um, all right, so let's wrap this up. It was funny, one, one, year, one year actually I practiced for about 10 days at my house with Amos Bansdorf, and he was ranked 17 in the world. And at that time, there were only 16 seats. Then the draw comes out, guess who I'm playing first round? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <that's... laughs> it never fails, huh? Never. <laughs> But the tennis is that sport, right? You practice with opponents. It's it's kind of that unique yes, sport. Yes, yes. 
Any any match like outside of the finals, the U.S. Open, since we're talking about MOS and those matches, any match that stands out for me, it's the Jamie Yezaga match. That you know, I woke up going for school, so I'll share my story. And you were supposed to play a day match, and that was blading into the night session. And you were in the fifth set. And as a young guy, I just woke up. It just oh no, Lendl's in the fifth. So of course, you are won you that talking match. about Jaime Jaime Izaga? Jaime Izaga, yeah, that match. Yeah, I think I think it was four sets. I lost the first set, and uh, then uh, I adjusted to the conditions. I I never liked playing in the evening because I didn't see the ball very well under the lights. Uh, but uh, I was able to adjust and uh, win that match. Luckily, sure. But uh, uh, your question was whether any other matches stand out. Yeah. Uh, yes, actually, one match which stands out. I was playing Richard Krajicek. And uh, first round, and I lost 81. the first two sets. Uh, not sure. I think it was later than 81. Uh, 91, no, no, 91, 91. No, it was 91. 91, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, then I win the third, and then I win the fourth, and then I look over, and he was so exhausted, I thought he was going to fall over and hurt himself. And uh, Richard and I got along really well, and I was kind of worried for him. But uh, of course, that didn't stop me from beating him six laugh. But uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I I genuinely believed he may just pass out and fall on his head. No, I, I remember that night. That was the first time in India we have Prime Sports cable. That was the first Grand Slam that was telecast live from round one. So I remember that that year. You also beat, I think, Ivanisevic, and then I think you reached the semis. Uh, I think in 91, yeah. So I, I have a lot of memories for that year. Yeah, I think I lost to uh, Edberg in the quarters, maybe. Uh, Edberg in the quarters, you lost in 92. In 91, you lost to Edberg in the semis. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, you see, your, your memory or research is better than my memory. I mean, you played the match and didn't look back. I I watched the match and I took notes as a fan. So two different <laughs> two different angles here. <laughs> So, and this is like the other uh, favorite part, you know, you know, go, growing up in India and reading about stuff. Uh, not that anybody said it directly, but media painted this picture. You know, we glorify certain players and we said Ivan Lendl is, you know, more serious or, you know, whatever, you know, some some not kind words. But uh, when we see you in commentary or even sometime talking about Murray or whatever, and now, of course, I'm living in this podcast, we see the wit, we see the humor. Uh, and this is something that was kept away from us. Did this stuff ever, you know, cross your mind, how you projected? Because your wit and, you know, jokes are amazing. The more it's come to our attention in the last eight or 10 years. Well, you're in the media, so you should know you don't believe what you read. True. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it has uh, a lot to do with uh, being serious during the matches. And uh, people just many times don't see past that. No, that's that's amazing because, uh, yeah, I think uh, also I think how a story is told matters. Uh, yes, exactly. And the other part is a lot of great players in other sports as well. Sometimes don't transition to the coaching box. Your success in the coaching box is quite amazing. So what have you learned about Ivan Lendl as a coach? Because, you know, when you're a world number one, a great player, you go for perfection how hard it is to sit in the coach's box and see your charge perform. And what is that, you know, is there a different emotion, different mindset? Do you learn the game differently, relearn the game actually? 
Well, you have to look at the game through somebody else's eyes. Uh, because it doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what you think is right or what you would do. It matters what the other guy could do or what the other guy should do, your your player. And uh, so you have to you have to be flexible and look at the game from a different angle. Sure. So my last question again, you know, was the introduction. You, your game and your style became such a template for generations to follow. And I'm sure that itself is something, you, you know, no player likes to boast, but I'm sure that has to mean something that so many players followed the Lendl template, you know, fitness, big serve, forehand. Uh, is that an accurate legacy? I mean, uh, I know players don't judge their own legacy, but a lot of us, you know, think you changed the game. How do you see that moment in time where you're attributed to be a true trailblazer who redefined the game and also generations followed uh, your playing style? Well, as you correctly said, you shouldn't judge your own legacy, but I will say I take it as a great compliment. While you were doing it, did you think it's going to become the style or that time you were just focused on, okay, I have to win the next match in the next tournament? Did you see it would yeah. become such a change? <laughs> I never really thought about it then, and I never really thought about it even at other times when, uh, or even after until people started mentioning it. Well, all right, quite the humble man, quite the great champion. I mean, I could go on forever, but this is what we agreed upon. It's a great podcast. I'm sure the listeners would really take uh, your insights. And again, it's such an honor, Ivan, to share this space with you. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed oh. every minute of it. Well, thank you very much and uh, great questions. So it was a pleasure talking to you.